The Creative Trust is a limited podcast series to celebrate 20 years of Gloss Creative. Together with our stellar alumni, we'll share everything we know to be true about the creative process and the business reality of running a small but powerful design platform. Two decades ago, I started Gloss Creative as my creative platform for experimentation and exploration. What has ensued has been an endlessly rewarding creation of ephemeral installations, each one put up, pulled down, each one leaving an enduring mark on its audience. I learned early on that I could make audiences fall in love with environments simply by making them feel and experience something. Memories that lasted long after the physical immersion had gone. It crystallised my long-held belief that your business plan is to harness your unbridled creative force and that creative renewal is your most powerful weapon over time. Welcome to the Creative Trust. My dear friend Marcus Baumgart is here today to talk to me in Season 2 episode five of the Creative Trust podcast, and he's here to talk to us about design writing. Marcus describes himself as a writer who designs buildings. My first contact with Marcus was back in 2008, I think, when Cameron Bruin sent you as a writer out to our studio to talk to us and to write an article for the DIA publication, Artichoke. That's right. And you came out to Glen Iris into our studio and you sat down and so differently from all the other interviews I'd done, which were via email, send the questions back, thanks. You sat down and just had an amazing chat with me. And I feel like we've just been talking ever since. Ever since, absolutely. Having coffee and eating cookies. So <laughs> I am very excited that you're with us today. Marcus is I best described as undescribable in the sense that as a creative person, he has his interests in so many areas, obviously through his day job, through um, Baumgart Clark Architects, but he also writes and has written so many design articles for some of um, Australia's premier publications. He also has a beautiful little site called The Inkshot where he, and he'll describe this way better, but I feel like that's your platform for fun. Welcome, Marcus. Thanks for coming today. It is absolutely my pleasure, Ms. Henderson. Nice to be here. We can just talk some more. I'm yeah, totally. I feel like I've got you under false pretenses. We haven't seen each other, obviously, No, we're just catching COVID, up, really, but we'll share it with like, everyone. Come over and we'll just absolutely. continue on where we left off. I'm really interested in how people get creative and I'm interested to hear from you. What was it in your childhood that set you up for your creative life? Well, it's it, it, it's kind of curious uh, and I, I had a really capital A architect's childhood in a way because I was obsessed with Lego and uh, I had a very, very large amount of Lego I was constant. I don't think I saw a television program in the 1970s and early 80s because I was always head down in a pile of Lego. Um, and a couple of other really uh, memorable things happened, which are utterly mundane, but they have absolutely stayed with me. My dad found on the side of a road of the road, literally found on the side of the road, a box full of 
off-cut aluminium angles. Amazing. Yeah. So they were like Lego, but not Lego. And I I think I spent 12 months just rearranging these and building things, and they stacked beautifully, and the quality of the material was so beautiful. Uh, so I kind of had this really uh, – this is very uh, – it's almost cliched, actually, the – the uh, portrait of the uh, young person who goes on to study architecture. Um, Frank Lloyd Wright always talked about his fruible blocks, which were the wood, the maple wood blocks. But actually, when I went to the US, uh, well, probably 20 years ago, I actually bought a box of them. I don't know why. I'm what are they? Can you describe? They're, yeah, they're designed. It's it's. Uh, now you're testing my memory, but it's a German kinder theorist called. Mr. Froebel. He, I can't remember his first name. I've forgotten all the details, but basically it was about uh, haptic learning. So it was about the feel of the timber, the grain of the timber, and they were primary solids. So there were prisms and pyramids and spheres and cylinders. And, you know, and so it really was Lego 100 years before Lego was even a thing. Um, and they actually sold a box. They said there was a thing called the Froebel box. Um, which they sold at the – it was actually in uh, the Museum of Modern Art, I think in Greenwich Village. I think there's a there's a, there's a, it's, yeah, there's a box down there and I, I got, that's where I got them. So, look, at one point, I never thought about what I wanted to do at all, but at one point someone asked me, what do you want to do when you grow up? I remember this. And my mother said, I think he wants to be an architect. And I sort of thought, yeah, okay, that'll do. Um, and that's kind of how it happened. So it wasn't really a decision. It's just something I fell into, really. I love it. And I, look, I, I mean, so many parallels there. Um, I grew up without a television, which was till I was nine, I guess. Um, and I think that had an incredible impact, you know, being so bored. I found things to make it do. And I think that's, you know, what you're describing with your dad, you know, finding the aluminium pieces and you just mucking about with them yes. is is so important and grounding and it, it just lets people's imaginations take well, that, place and that's grow. It, Amanda. And I think the key word is play. It was really just play. I wasn't doing anything serious. I was just playing around and keeping myself entertained. Exactly. And if, it, if it hadn't been interesting, it wouldn't have happened. So there's no nobility to it. It was totally self-interested. It was just kept me entertained, really. I was entertained by a box of Cuisinair rods. Um, Fantastic. Which were those literally a wooden box of coloured rods. Yes. Um, very thin coloured rods. And each rod, its size, was also a new, was given a numerical Ah, um, oh, yes. Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. And I made literally rugs of, you know, yellow and pink and and. It yeah. was actually a mathematical thing. Yes, I remember um, them. So you remembered, you know, what made up 10 and how you could make up 10. And, yes. you know, I would just, for me, it was all about the colour. But somehow it also gave me a bit of a mathematical thing as well. Um, and I think that's, you know, all of that Lego and those sort of things, I think are so fantastic um, for just letting people's minds run wild. And I think... Your story is 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 typical of so many creative people where they just start playing. It's sure. Pretty exciting. When you grew up, what a little bit older, what was your expression of creativity? And when did the writing start? Like, yeah, that's that's like a yes, really... you want to be an architect, but when yeah. did that whole word thing start for you? Well, it's really interesting. When I said I think when my mum said I think Marcus wants to be an architect, it turns out Marcus didn't want to be an architect. 
because um, I'm I'm literally and legally not an architect. So as of right now, I'm remain unregistered, even though I've practiced for nearly twenty five years. Uh, and in our business, we do everything by the book. So I certainly don't do anything, and I, I certainly don't call myself an architect because that would not be appropriate. It's a legal term. So having cleared the air on that, um, the writing really emerged, I think, during university. So I didn't particularly enjoy studying architecture. It, I, I felt I was a bit too ambitious at the time. It was like, I don't know how your 20s were, but mine were awful. And I'm very glad they're a long time ago and I don't have to do all that again. We move on. We move <laughs> on. We do indeed. But, you know, actually getting over the ambition to be very good, whatever that meant, and I don't think it was ever really clearly defined in my mind, when I got over that ambition, a whole lot of really wonderful things started happening. And I suddenly realized I could do all sorts of things. And uh, I think the professional boundary of architect is, like I, I, I think it's provisionally very useful. I think there is an argument to be made to protecting the public from poor practice. So I, you know, and certainly, as I said, everything we do in our practice is absolutely according to the letter of the law. But in terms of personal labeling and what that does to your identity, it, it, there's something about it. I, I, I don't like it. It's too limiting. So if you're an architect, I no, sorry, I won't generalize this. I'll say it very personally. I feel if I was an architect, it would prevent me from being some other things that I also want to be. Uh, and um, I love running a business with my business partner, John Clark. It's a constant challenge. It's particularly challenging the moment with COVID. So there are all sorts of endless logistical challenges, but all these things really do. And also the challenge of designing buildings, what they really do for me in the what I call the day job, euphemistically, even though it's night times too many times. Of course. Of course. Uh, the day job, what it does is stops me being bored. And um, you know, boredom is one of the worst fates that can befall you as a creative individual. So as long as I'm not being bored, I'm very happy, even without the title architect. So I, I don't know it. if that's that, – that it's, it's controversial. Like some people with an architecture degree are absolute defenders of the professional title of architect. Uh, now, I think there's an absolute role for the control of that term, so I'm not trying to lay claim to it without the uh, right qualifications of registration, but I do think it is a bit limiting if you're living your life on a slightly broader canvas. Yeah. And so many people who are creative have a breadth of creativity that they like to express. So I think uh, the world is starting to understand that People work in a lot of different worlds and I feel like in our world, in the world I work in, it's very blended. I feel like you're right, architecture is a very strict discipline yes. of the way people see themselves as architects yes. is quite clear, I yes. guess. Um, where I come from, graphic designers, event managers, um, uh, you know, interior designers, writers can all do the same job. Yes. And yet they come from different backgrounds. Yes. They have different schools, but they do the same job. It's very exciting. Yeah, it is. And you get this incredible, when you're collaborative, you get this incredible mix of people with different skills that create the kind of magic, I guess. I, th you know? I think that's right. And I, I mean, um, 
some interesting things happen when your energy is not diverted into protecting your professional boundaries, I guess. Um, you can stray then. If you're not confined in that way, you can stray into other people's territory. Uh, and you strayed into writing and we're glad you did. Oh, so, yeah, I'm glad I did too. Yeah. So when did you actually start writing? Well, I enjoyed it during university. It was one of the things, I enjoyed design work at university and I enjoyed uh, the writing. And, you know, I have vivid memories of writing essays about the difference between a Roman forum and the Greek agora um, from an urban design point of view. So the, the topic was uh, absolutely on point in terms of an architect's or let me say an architectural education. But what I actually remember was the joy of articulating with clarity those ideas and really using words as a way of defining things. Again, let me deprofessionalize it. Buildings and the built environment is everything that writing isn't, but the converse is absolutely true. Writing does things that buildings and the built environment absolutely cannot do. Um, now, architects, and by this I do mean actual architects, particularly at the peak of the profession, often lay claim to meaning uh, in their work in ways that I find, to be fair, a little bit unconvincing. I think uh, architecture and buildings should stick to their knitting and do what architecture and buildings do. And, you know, I was actually educated at University of Canberra and RMIT. So the first bit was Uni of Canberra, which at the time I went through in 1991 was a kind of what was left of a pretty Bauhaus kind of education. Um, it had certainly been set up that way uh, initially, and it, it probably isn't that anymore, but it, it more or less was when I was there. So after three years of that, I went off and worked for a year and then uh, about 17 of us from the University of Canberra course, 13, 17, something like that, was well into the teens, decided we would all go to RMIT. So we applied en masse and we got in. Uh, well, most of us did. And uh, a couple who didn't get in initially got in six months later anyway. So you had your buddies with you down in Melbourne? In Melbourne, yeah. So we, we landed in the middle of RMIT architecture department in the 90s, which apart from being a bit of a shark pit, because it certainly was, it wasn't pleasant in some ways, but it was interesting. And what you, wasn't pleasant around it? Oh, it was uh it was very factional, very political. Uh it, it was a scene, basically, and I don't really get on well with scenes. I, they make me uncomfortable. And uh there were a lot of very uh, but but it was absolutely fascinating. Like it was really interesting and it was a great education. It just wasn't necessarily socially that much fun, but that's not the purpose of an education primarily, or so they say anyway. Well, I'm not sure about certainly that. got you where you are. Well, that's right, yeah. <laughs> so, look, it was a, it was a, I'm very glad I did it, and I'm very glad I don't have to do it anymore. But it was, um, there was a lot of uh, theory, theory was the catchphrase in the 90s at RMIT. So there was a lot of claiming ideas into architecture that I don't really think the architecture I, yeah, I think it was it was aesthetic, to be honest with you. I think the theory was a bit of a fetish, and I think there were very few actual theoreticians in architecture in the 90s who were actually theorizing what architects actually do. Lots of actuallys in that, but you get the point. Um, yeah, so look, it's, the profession's moved on from that, It's um, but it was a, a great time to be educated at RMIT, certainly. And Ingrid Rule, their senior exhibition designer at NGV, said the same thing about her time at 
RMIT, it taught her to think. Absolutely. To organise her thoughts and to take action and to come up with what I call ideas generation. That is absolutely right. I do feel that, um, you know, somehow your strategic thinking is made happen by your words and by the way you use them. So I'd like to talk about um, when you're writing. Um, I think the people who are listening to this, you know, we're the people who have to do presentations, who have to convince people of our ideas. We have to explain our ideas to people. And one of the things that I've always felt when I've read the hundreds of articles that you've done for Artichoke, you've always laid out so clearly what the studios are about and somehow over the top of that, you've um, been able to communicate with the audience about their magic or the intangibles in sure, some way. Sure, sure. So what I'm really interested in is when you go and see people and you yes. talk to them before you write, how do you how does that creative process start? How sure. do you get the brief? When do you do your thinking? When do you go and see them? Yes. And how do you write it? I'm really keen to know particularly as it, as I said, it's for the people who might have to do this for themselves. Yeah, yeah, of course. Absolutely. There's so much in that. Uh, I so, know. It's so the, the first thing, thing I start time. with is my motto, uh, and it's really a working methodology, and it, it might disappoint some of the listeners, but it works for me every time, and it's summarized by the phrase, start anywhere and just get on with it. Now, that, that sounds like it's a statement of the absolute bleeding obvious, but it's actually not. Because what I don't do is strategize away into the whole process. I don't do that. I just start somewhere and get on with it. So when I start, and I've heard this set of poetry as well. I've, I have dabbled in poetry, but I won't call myself a poet. But um, poetry doesn't start with an idea. Poetry starts with a bit of poetry. So I think that translates into writing as well. Writing doesn't start with an idea. And this is why outlining in fiction is an absolute red herring. It's great for selling books, but selling books about writing, but, um, you know, you, you actually start with the writing. So it's interesting. I'm really glad you mentioned when I first met you and we had our so-called interview, which wasn't really an interview because one, one thing I do with all the subjects I interview is I don't really interview them. And I don't have questions. I don't have any questions. Well, when I better I start. get rid of the computer and my questions right no, now. That, that's <laughs> no, that, I mean, when I'm yeah, writing no, about true. someone, and did, what yeah. I, I think what I said to you is what I say every single time, just tell me what you're doing in your own words. And that absolutely clarifies for both me immediately and for the person talking about their work, what they're doing, because there's no, there's no grand concept. There's no grand strategy. It's not about a priori ideas that you then apply to what you're doing. It is literally, if you've got to explain this to me in the simplest possible terms, assume I'm intelligent and a good listener, but don't know what you're talking about necessarily, just tell me in your own words. And it works every time. It has never let me down. And, and in fact, when I'm presenting design ideas, which I have to do quite often, I do the same thing. I think, okay, well, um, you know, how do I explain this in simplest terms possible? And don't use jargon. Don't use industry terminology that that an intelligent lay reader wouldn't understand because it's not necessary. And that's actually an aesthetic choice too. So it's not just that it's not necessary, it's irrelevant. Uh, You know, uh, industry terminology is uh, shorthand for industry 
participants to talk to each other, but it has no place in communicating to interested parties who aren't up to their eyeballs in your own profession. Um, it's a personal view, but it's one I hold quite strongly. So, so that simplicity that you're talking about, I guess, in a way, and clarity, your writing is clear, but it's also kind of magic as well. So where does that come from? How do you infuse yeah. that style as well as this yes. concise yes. clarity that you have? Well, there is an aspiration there and it is a lofty aspiration. My, um, Go with I'm, lofty. I'm, I'm actually, we love lofty. I'm jumping ahead to one of your questions, I think, but um, a writer I've discovered recently has rapidly become my favourite writer ever. Uh, and I've, I've read a, a very, very, very large amount because you can't be a writer unless you're a reader first. So who is it? And it is Fernando Pessoa. Tell me who about him. Who died at the age of 47 in 19... Oh, it's going to test me, 1938, I think, perhaps. He was a Portuguese writer. He wrote a book called The Book of Disquiet. Um, now, Fernando Pessoa uh, wrote in total obscurity and died at the age of 47 and left behind a trunk with 10,000 written fragments in it. So a very symmetrical 47 years after his death, it was published for the first time. Um, and it, there is no definitive version of the Book of Disquiet. It can be assembled. So some of the fragments were dated. Some have been dated by their handwriting. Just, I mean, scholars have crawled all over this. And he called it his factless autobiography. And it was written in the context of a third person writing it. So he was a crazy, he was a really crazy guy. He had these, they weren't pseudonyms, though. he called them heteronyms. And he had like dozens of them. And they were basically distinct personalities that he wrote as. And each one of them has, he like he was a genius. And each one has its own writing style. And he was able to move between these writing styles, which... I can tell you as a writer, is extremely difficult to do. You can't usually change your own style. He actually would write. So Bernardo Suarez was a clerical officer in a shipping company in Lisbon, and he ostensibly wrote the Book of Disquiet, and he called it his factless autobiography, in which if I have nothing to say, in which if I say nothing, it's because I have nothing to say. So he's got, and it's an amazing read. I'd recommend it to anyone. That you you said you can read it like a novel if you want to torture yourself a bit, or you can dip in and out. Each fragment uh, there might be one page, two page, three page, four page, nothing more than that really. There's about three, four hundred fragments. Um, it is extraordinary writing, and it is literally about nothing. It's like the Seinfeld of literature. It's a show about nothing. Um, he and yet it touches on themes and feelings and emotions and experiences that are so utterly universal, uh, it's extraordinary. So anyway, we've leapt ahead, but that's oh, magic. Good. He was literally writing about nothing, and yet there's a magic in it. So to answer, to get back to your question, where does this come from? I, it's very interesting. There's a, there's a thing in meditation which I've been doing for the last two and a half years uh, a lot every night probably between half an hour and an hour of meditation where, um, and, I, and please, uh, if there's meditation experts out there, do do email in and correct me if I'm wrong. But I believe Zen, uh, the definition of Zen is just sitting. So there is nothing more to it. You just sit. And I certainly know that um, I think it might be Pema Chodron, who's a famous uh, Buddhist uh, ed educator, has said that 80% of 
meditation is posture. So if you get the posture right, you're 80% there and there's nothing more to it. And it is literally about nothing. So what I find, and the reason I mentioned that, I find that if you just lay out the bare facts, they generate this magic. So when I say to someone, just tell me what you're doing in your own language, the magic comes along automatically. And it is kind of like Zen, just sitting. It's just sitting. It's just writing down what you're being told. But if you get the tone right, and if you think about who your readers are, uh, like, you know, and you avoid all bad uses of language, like terminology and jargon and all that sort of stuff, if you actually just clearly express a simple idea, I think the magic just appears. So I, I don't think there's a trick to it. I think it's just inherent in the simplicity of it. Beautiful. So when you've finished talking to the studio and you go back home and you start to write, yes. how many words is that? And how typically how long does that take you to craft it into yeah, something? Uh, and like well, how many processes do you go through? Well, it's, it, it's actually, this is why I think I'm a writer first and a building designer second, because I find writing immensely easy. Um, and when I say I start anywhere and get on with it, I quite literally do that. So I don't plan an article. I literally start writing on whatever point it's furthest to the front of my mind. And I have never had that fail me. Um, so I write generally the articles I write for Artichoke, Houses and other magazines are 800 words to 1,000. Occasionally 1,500 words if it's an essay. Occasionally 700 words if it's a short review or short profile. Uh, and then there's also profiles of different studios, which run to about 1,200, 1,500 words as well. I basically write about 1,000 words in two hours, and that includes editing as I go. So I, 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 hope, I hope my editors aren't listening to this. They, they might chastise me. But You're I, a powerhouse. I, I don't, I don't labour over my writing at all. Um, but the fact is I just sort of don't have to. I would if I had to. Um, I certainly labour over design. Um, absolutely. Like that's, that is not that I'm, you know, I'm not a prodigy. I, the design is hard yakka for me, but um, the writing is as close to effortless as something can be and I just enjoy it. That's, if it's effortless, it must be enjoyable. It is enjoyable. Um, you must be in flow. I'm very glad you mentioned that. Uh, the concept of flow, because one of the, my favourite articles I've ever written was a review of Bruce Rowe, who is a ceramicist with Anchor Ceramics. Gorgeous ceramics. Gorgeous ceramics. And um, Bruce absolutely lives his professional life in flow. And the way he described it was it was like going through a series of open doors after spending 10, 15 years banging his head against the wall. So when he moved from architecture to ceramics and literally got his hands in the earth, and started working with clay, it's like all those doors open. So that's what writing is for me. And interestingly, writing about flow was double flowy. <laughs> it was <laughs> particularly flow. flowy, yeah. It is. There is something nice about a point where you get to where there's enough tension where you're being challenged, but you've got enough skill to deliver it. Correct. And that magic that flows from that. Absolutely. Is is kind of what we're all chasing, isn't it? Absolutely. So like there are that. there are obviously different types of writing in the world and there are different types that I aspire to. So I will say the articles for publications are my most efficient and flowy experience of writing. When as soon as I turn as 
it's it's like a subconscious trigger. As soon as I decide in my head, okay, I'm going to write a bit of fiction now, it's not quite as flowy. So we're back to hard work again. So um, it, it just so happened. I think I've, I've written between 70 and 150 articles for publications, I think, since 2001. Incredible. So I've kind of just got it working now so I can do it very efficiently. Certainly, uh, you know, life isn't uh, endless ice skating across smooth ponds in every regard when well, it comes to writing, but that that I've got worked out, I think. So that many articles, I'm sitting here thinking you've been to some amazing, you've I met have. amazing people and you've probably travelled to some incredible buildings and yes. environments. Yes. I mean, that is extraordinary. And what what have what well, have you learned from just going to all the studios and seeing where their environments? Well, it's very, what a privilege! It's very, it is an absolute privilege, and I'm constantly aware of that, and always thank people for sharing their projects and homes with me. Because as a practitioner, it really is getting a bit of an inside peek into other people's processes. It's so enriching. You certainly don't write for the money. I can say that. Not in Australia, and maybe a few people in New York, but um, good luck to them. None, none of the rest of us write for the money um, because it really doesn't pay uh, very handsomely. But that's not why we would do that, and that's certainly not why I write the articles. I write the articles because I do get to see some amazing places, particularly houses, but also other interiors, and I get to meet some amazing people, and they get to just talk to me about something they've invested so much time and energy into and they love talking about. So they're always, I, I think out of 150 uh, interview experiences, I probably had one or two that weren't a thorough In pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Um, they, they're usually very pleasurable and very enjoyable and very engaging. But it's, it's, it's interesting what, what the, the insight that I've got now is that I and I know this because when you're working in an architecture practice, as I have for the last 25 years or so, you are down in the trenches, you respond to a design problem with a particular strategy. Uh, I, I think originality in general is a bit of a furphy, I think it's a red herring, I think it's much better to be uh specific than to be original, so that's just a bit of a side note. But um, often the ideas we come up with when we're working in the field of building design and architecture are not original because they've been done before. It's not about that. It's about making them very, very specific to the user, to the client, to the cohort who are going to use the building, to the site, to all of these other conditions. And that's where that magic comes from. But one thing I have noticed is that I see the same strategies again and again and again. And this is probably less true when I'm reviewing interiors uh, as interiors and probably more true when I'm reviewing house renovations of which I've done very, very many. So, um, you know, the old the, the idea of the, the heritage terrace at the front, bowling over the back, the open plan space, all of these things are done constantly. The reason they're done constantly is they're a good strategy. They so work. They work, absolutely. Now, everyone does it differently. So I never say, I never find myself saying, this is a very original strategy for dealing with an existing house because usually they aren't. That's not the point. The point and that is, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter. So, you know, actually, I, I'm not sure if it's even been published now. Shout out to Andrew Maynard. I met Andrew uh, for the first time, actually, although I've admired Austin Maynard's work for quite a few years now. Um, I met Andrew at the Yarrabend House uh, that he had completed for, I met the client as well. It was a fantastic experience. And 
Um, as I say in the article, I think it's about to be published in architect design houses, if not already. Um, uh, it, you know, it was just such a pleasure to see something so specific. The, like the strategies were tried and true. There was nothing particularly original about that house, but it was so specifically tailored to the needs of that client. It's a very happy client who now has a framework in which she can live the rest of her life, which was her decision and her choice. And Andrew talked very simply about it. You know, it's it's not about it's not about concepts. It's not about uh, highfalutin sort of theorization. It's got nothing to do with any of that. And that's not where the value is in what I saw. The value in what I saw was that it was so specific in all the right ways. So uh, in that case, Austin Maynard as a team had listened to that client and heard what she had to say. And that's things that she liked, things that she didn't like, and what she got was more than she could ever have done for herself, and that's the best possible outcome. I'm understanding now how you working in the world of architecture would feed your writing, your understanding of buildings, of the environment, yes. and how it, how you work, how architects work with clients. Yes. I can see that you're highly qualified when you go into to write about different projects, that because you're a designer as such, yes. you know the right questions yes. in a way yes. or you understand what's going on. And maybe as well as the magic and the clarity, your incredible knowledge of built environment is at play and is part of that magic as well. And I'm not even an architect, Amanda. There you go. There you go. Incredible. Um, yeah, well, look, it's, it's certainly true having – an understanding of making and dealing with people. And I will actually say that our architecture practice, Baumgart-Clark Architects, the best thing that we do involves people. Okay. So we, 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 we're a young firm. Actually, we're eight years old this year. Um, so Happy we have, birthday. Thank you. We're, we haven't been around very long. We haven't got any, we've been shortlisted for an award, but we haven't got any awards yet. And I think it's because, well, yeah, well, no, I'm, I'm not going to theorize as to why. We haven't applied for many, but the point is awards are great. Everyone loves winning awards. It's nice to get them. It was lovely when we were shortlisted for an interior with Nexus Designs. That was a great experience. We went up to Sydney to the event. We didn't get the award, but that's all right. That doesn't matter. They're all, that's all great fun. But it's not the point. The point of what we do is dealing with people. So um, we work with a lot of not-for-profits. We work with, uh, and it's interesting, uh, I think I say on the website, uh, you know, we're housing the homeless and the needy, housing the moderately wealthy and everyone in between, you know. So we do a lot of social and community housing, a lot of public housing. It's not glamorous work, but it is good work. You know, it's actually really, really solid. Um, to be able to de to to assist a cohort of people who are in need, and um, having worked across the spectrum of architecture in twenty five years, so I've certainly worked for cutthroat commercial developers at the high end of the residential market. I've done that. Never want to do it again because we like working with people who are working to a set of values, and that value isn't money. Okay. I love that. You know, I it's great. It's, I, I, I'm not saying it's bad to be focused on money. It's just of no interest to me. Um, so another thing we do now, I will, I will freely admit I am a born again atheist, but you know, we do a lot of work with Catholic schools, uh, public schools as well, but certainly independent and religious schools. Now I don't have to agree with 
uh, the values. But what I absolutely respect and what we respect is that these places have values and the values are not about money. Um, you've got to take care of money. Don't get me wrong. We're running a business. We have to take care of money and we don't want to waste client resources. So that has to be attended to, but that's not what they're in it for. So even when those uh, schools, they're probably in some ways a bit more conservative than I am in my heart, it doesn't matter because I've worked with developers. And uh, so I, they're I looking know, pretty good. <laughs> I know what I'm comparing them to. So I'm always very pleased to work with clients with values. So we do a lot of, uh, you know, housing, aged care. We've got six public schools on the go at the moment, but it's all really good stuff because it, it's working with people and for people. Describe to me a project that you've done that's been completed and that you've felt, I guess, a reward from. Like when I say reward, I mean deep reward for what you've done. Just that happy, warm feeling inside sure. that you've done something great. Well, I would say we we managed to get that feeling from almost every educational project that we do because working for kids is great. Uh, kids, are, they are so they are so amazing. I mean, we had uh, we were we're working with Ascot Vale West Primary School at the moment, and last year at some point during COVID, the whole last two years is a blur. I can't remember when, but we had a consultation session, which as those of uh, your listeners who know the profession. Uh, we're talking about can be euphemistically termed telling people and then ignoring them. Obviously, <laughs> there that can happen. Consultation gets a bad name, but this was fantastic. It was a room of, I think, 20 or 25 primary school kids. And i got to say, their questions were cutthroat. They were absolutely dynamite. They, they, were, they, really, <laughs> they were onto us. And they asked, like the calibre of the questions – it, it really does put groups of adults to shame because often what we find in consultation with adults is that there's more politics involved. So people ask questions in order to make a statement or whatnot. But when you're dealing with kids, absolutely fantastic. I mean, one of them liked the colour green and wanted to know how much green we were putting in. So, you know, these are things that adults will be scared to ask because they sound silly. But it's absolutely relevant to their use of the building. Uh, there was one question... Um, and, and this was, a, I think, from an 11-year-old boy. He asked a question about the budget. I thought, oh, my God, it was unbelievable. That's but it was, a, it was a very insightful, you know, it was, it was about value, you know. And um, so, look, those education projects are always fantastic. I, I love those. We've also got a long-term client uh, who are Sacred Heart Mission in St Kilda. Uh, we are on stage three, which commenced construction of their Gray Street campus, corner of Grain Robe Street. We started working with them in 2014, which was within 12 months of starting our business. We did a master plan for them. We've been through stage 1A, 1B, stage 2A, 2B. We finally attended stage three, six, seven years later. Uh, and it's it's they're a great client. And one thing I will say about not-for-profits, not only do they good, do good stuff, they actually are respectful. They know the value of a dollar because they've got to fight to get their dollars. They've got to make sure they don't waste their dollars. And we'd never have, out of 25 years of being an architecture person, I've never had problems getting paid by a not-for-profit agency, always had problems with developers. Um, it's, just a, it's just about respect. So not only do they respect their cohorts that they are assisting through life, uh, they respect other people's time, and that's why we love working with those people. But the mission are fantastic. Um, 
Kathy Humphreys is the CEO. She's been with us for the whole journey. Um, we did an aged care facility for them, which basically tripled the size of an existing aged care facility right on Grey Street there. Uh, and um, the best idea in that project, this is, I'm quite happy to admit this, the best idea in that project came from uh, Margaret Thorpe, the resident manager of the facility. And she said, you're doing what, I'm paraphrasing, she didn't say exactly this, but she kind of said, look, you're kind of doing what aged care facilities always do, and that's put the living space in the middle. Our cohort uh, have come from the street. They want to be connected to the street. So from that simple observation, we turned that whole facility inside out to all the living spaces on four levels connect directly to the street. So people in that facility can wave to their friends in the street. They can see the street. They can see activity in the street. And unlike just about every other aged care facility I've been in, it's actually outward looking and people can look in and it's exposed to life. Now, we didn't come up with that idea. We translated that it idea. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter who gets the punchline as long it as someone matter. does. And it was it was such a good idea. And the plans up to that point had not been working properly. And when that observation was made, it totally turned it around. So uh, Sacred Up Mission, I'll give them a shout out. They're a fantastic organisation. If any of your listeners want to donate to anyone, donate to them. They do such good stuff. And uh, it's interesting, the average stay, you may not know this, but the average stay in an aged care facility in Australia is about two years, 18 months to two years, because of course people leave via the back door. Um, for Sacred Up Mission, the average stay is 20 years. And the average age of people going into their aged care facility is often quite a bit younger because people from the street have often had rougher lives. They've had a lot of physical wear and tear on their bodies and their minds. But all of a sudden, they get into this fantastic supportive environment. They're getting regular medication, food, getting looked after. And they absolutely thrive. So that is wonderful. That's a good project. I love it. I love it. Your projects are so fabulous. I think, and like you, you know, you're saying it's like, that stuff doesn't isn't obviously award winning. No, it's you know? not. Unlike the attention seeking work that we do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was feeling kind of lightweight compared with what you do. Um, I love I've loved hearing those stories. That's great. I'm interested to know your design process when you start a building or a project. You've described to us how you go about your writing. Yep. I'm interested, particularly in your perspective and you know when I've rung you on the weekends you're like I'm writing up a pitch or a you know for something yes. you know you've often been involved in um, coming up with the ideas yes. um, communicating the ideas and obviously working with your clients which yes. you obviously love yes um, I'm interested with your team which is quite big I was looking it's really quite big how how does that process run out yeah, how does that go? Okay, so um, it's really interesting. I, I actually correct one thing you said earlier. The InkShot is my old blog. As of late December, so this is an announcement. Announcement. Go with it. It's a first. That's right. It's <laughs> a first. first. Um, as of, uh, I think, 17th of December, I'm now at marcusbaumgut.com. The InkShot was fantastic. but I love the InkShot. The InkShot was great, but it was all about writing in cafes. And I just, after, I think it was 12 years that existed, 
And um, I just got to the point, 10, 12 years, something like that, where, no, I need a broader canvas. And there's these Stepping things, it up all these the things time. have nothing in common except that I do them. So I thought my name would do. So anyway. And I hope you still write. I mean, that was another question I actually yes. have for you, you about, you know, how they talk about um, celebrities in cars. Yes. Or your Marcus in cafes writing. Yes, I do. And you with your, you often talk about design, your design tools, your pencils. your Absolutely. Your pencil sharpener, your laptop, your notebook, those yep. sorts of things. I am interested in, you know, I guess we're here now. What part does that play in your creative process? Yes. Is that for your writing or is that for when you work in architecture? Well, it's really interesting. I absolutely over-fetishise the writing instruments and notebooks. I basically already own a lifetime supply of notebooks. If Likewise. I buy another notebook, it, it, it's completely superfluous. I'll be dead before I get to it. So I've decided. Who, who, win, who, who dies with the, what is it? Who, the, who dies the, with most, most notebooks wins. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so I love pens. I love pencils. Uh, in fact, I love Palomino Blackwing pencils. Just very beautiful to use. And I've got far too many of them. and They're very expensive. Do you have an electric pencil sharpener? No, I don't. No, I do. No. I see, you see, now you that, need, that's I'm going to get you hard. one for your birthday, Thank mate. You. That's very, <laughs> that's very kind, Amanda Anderson. Um, yeah, so those tools are really important. I, I like doing hand drawings, and we like to encourage our staff to do hand drawings. Um, there's a generational yeah. divide. So, question: yeah. hand drawn, computer generated. Which well, one? Well, it's very interesting. I use often. I do some sketching in a tool called Vectorworks, which is a CAD package. Vectorworks is yep. the eminent package for theatre design there you and go. event design. And you know why? Because, because it, it works. It works and it's just <laughs> like Illustrator, except it's dimension. Yeah. So I, I use That's it. That's so interesting. Yeah, yeah. So I use Vector. I'm the only one in the office with a Vectorworks license. No one else can use it because I use Macintosh computers. Vectorworks runs on Macs and always has. So um, I love Vectorworks and I'm actually really, really quick at it in 2D now. So I don't do any 3D in Vectorworks. It's, it's basically assembly and you can you can drag other media into it like imagery and patterns and hand scan. So you can scan things into it, PDFs. So what uh, the workflow I use quite often now is I get the staff to set up the site on Revit. So Revit's an eye-wateringly expensive CAD package used by huge offices and us. Um, so it's fully 3D. It's been building information modeling. So it's very high tech. John and I have no idea how it works. We just know that it works. We've got lots of young people to deal with that. But what I do is get them to set up the site and the parameters, and then I'll have a plan vector works, and then I'll flick a PDF back to them and say, try and make this work. So there is a workflow there. And I have to admit, in the office, I more often use Vectorworks than I do hand drawing nowadays, which is interesting because I did a, I did an unheard of hand-drawn major project presentation at RMIT in 1998. So no computers at all. Wow. Absolutely none. It was so was it just you or were there other just people? Just me. Just me. Yeah. I did ink drawings on film. Um, so it was, you know, drafting technology from 50 years ago, but with a slightly different twist on it. And do you think people who sketch and write, you know, in a very, what I call a dirt world way, yes, there is something about creation through the pen totally. and drawing as a founding 
tool, I guess, you know? Yes. Look, I completely agree. And it is a generational divide. So we have, uh, I'm probably going to get their ages wrong, but we have a 37-year-old senior architect who's all computer. We have a 44-year-old senior architect who works in hand first and then moves on from there. And the difference is quite distinctive and it is a generational. And just those few years have made all the difference. I mean, John is long gone. He, he never used CAD in his life and doesn't need to because he's running a practice and he doesn't do documentation, obviously. But he knows how to put a building together. That's his skill. Yes. So, um, But isn't it great that everyone brings their skills to the same job? Correct. I love that. That is correct, yeah. But like, if you, I, it comes back to the Froebel blocks and the grain of the maple blocks and and the uh, aluminium offcuts. Yeah. It's actually that that mechanical tactility in the hand that really you need an absolute bedrock of that, or you're not going to be able to design something successfully in 3D, in my opinion. So it's a personal view, but I'm old. So it's 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 what we call design by doing. Yeah, design by doing. You know, and it, there is such a truth in what you're saying about just starting something. Yep. Just start and see where it takes you. And certainly in my early years as a visual merchandiser, I would just put stuff together in two hours, get a result, stand back and go, wow, that was fun and aren't I clever, doesn't that look good? Yeah. And interestingly, as I got older and um, had bigger projects, Obviously, people give you money to do those projects, but you have to explain what you're going to do with it. So all of a sudden, where I just explored and played, I had to reverse it. I had to see the vision first and then tell them what I was going to do with their half a million or a million dollars. And that way of designing is kind of scary when you first start. You think, I'm going to lose it because I have to be so practical with it. But I feel if you have a grounding of design by doing, it can inform, you know, when you're strategizing and you've got a vision, the two can work together and Absolutely. somehow Absolutely. all of a sudden you're meeting in the middle. That's exactly right. And you, that's a perfect segue into one of my current obsessions, Amanda, and this is in my new blog. Um, I've got a new project. I've totally ripped off uh, Fernando Pessoa and I'm, I'm tr- attempting to assemble what I'm calling the Book of Uncertainty. Right. So he did the book of disquiet. I'm doing the book of uncertainty. It'll take me till I'm dead and someone can assemble it after I'm gone. There is literally no ambition in this project except pure ambition. So I want to do it and that's good enough. It doesn't matter if it works or not. But the, the point I was trying to make with all that rambling is that this matter of uncertainty and certainty, if I'm in two worlds, one is writing and one is designing buildings and running an architecture consulting business and it is a business, Architectural consulting businesses are all about managing uncertainty and banishing it as much as possible on behalf of our clients. Now, the writing is exactly the opposite. You have to be uncertain about everything. So I'm much more comfortable in the world of uncertainty than I am in the world of certainty because this people when people engage you to design a building for them and get it built, so much of their money is involved. It's a huge responsibility. Money stresses me out. You know, I, variations on site, problems with builders absolutely stresses me out. My business partner, John, can chew that up and spit it out, no problem. And he gets stressed by things that I'm quite comfortable with, which is why we're such a good, great team, good combo. 
Um, but look, uh, you know, architecture is all about getting rid of uncertainty. So you don't have to be, uh, you can never get rid of all uncertainties. And we all, we're always saying that to our clients, but you can be about two steps ahead of where the client is. And that's all you need to be. So it's like risks, this horrible idea of risk management, which has infiltrated everything. You can never banish your risk, but you can get ahead of the curve. So, um, that's what architecture and buildings is all about. Now, in the writing, you absolutely need to thrive on, on uncertainty. You've got to embrace and live in And be comfortable with not knowing where you're going. That's exactly right. And that's why I enjoy writing and buildings and architecture are really work. It's interesting, isn't mm. it? I think this, the fact that you're so comfortable with being in the unknown is like creative courage. But if you can work out a way which you have of being comfortable in the uncomfortable, or as I say, sitting in the mess, yeah. you know, and that's something we find, we start, it's all great. We're exploring ideas and all of a sudden it gets hard because the budget gets in there, the time timeline gets in there. And all of a sudden this magic little idea that you have has gone through a client battery and all of a sudden it's in pieces on the floor. Absolutely. Like it's not quite that dramatic, but it's, it's messy. It's yeah. on the floor and you have to be comfortable with sitting in the mess for a little while and slowly you pull it back together kind of in a new form. Totally. And then that's yeah. when you get a little bit more joy and momentum going and then yes. you move forward. Yes. So I'm very interested in how people um, – keep that creative courage going you know I think it's and it's kind of the if you can master that I think that's one of the keys to renewal yes and creative longevity yes and creative sustainability which is what obviously now I'm older I'm right into that of course yeah, yeah and of course. I think if you can have that way of working that refreshes itself you know you adapt getting new skills and moving into areas that you're not that comfortable with because you don't really know about it, but you, like you say, just start and see start, where it takes start you. Start and get on with it. That start is amazing. And get on with it. Yeah, exactly. it's interesting. My business partner, the registered architect John Clark, I won't give you his registration number, but he's up there, <laughs> um, is uh, really expert in knowing exactly what he has to be certain about and nothing else. Love and this it. is something I admire because I'm not so good at that. Like he knows that the business of architecture is about managing uncertainty on behalf of clients because they've given you a lot of money to spend and they've given you time, which is also money. You know, so there's so many responsibilities. But as as a registered architect, you cannot manage like you can't you can't deal with everything. No. So you have to know what to deal with. And that's what he's absolutely brilliant at, knowing exactly what to deal with when, because it also changes over the course of a project. So you can't waste an ounce of energy on the wrong thing at the wrong time. No one has time for that. And that's why he's such a good architect. And that's why I'm very glad he's my business partner. And isn't that great when you work with people that you look at and you go, I'm really glad you're here because. I can't I, do that. I can't do that. I can't that do that. Is, that's Absolutely. diversity. That's true diversity. Yeah. I've got a question for you now. Sure. Talk to me about the shape of your day. What's your favorite day? What do you love doing? Well, How do you go about it? Yes, it's very interesting. I have a brand new puppy who is four and a half months old. Her name is Bunty Baumgart. 
you'll find her on my blog. There's photos there, of course, because I obsessively take photos of my cocker spaniel puppy. So my ideal day is probably a work day because I get a bit lost on weekends sometimes um, when I don't have social occasions to distract me. Uh, but uh, I love going to breakfast with my puppy uh, quite near my house. It's about 100 metres away. Sit uh, in the sun for an hour uh, at 7.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. So that gets me back home and then I can just ease into the day. And I, I am describing a work-from-home day because that's all I've been doing for the last two years with a of couple it's of very It's our new toilets. normal. <laughs> it's our new normal. That's exactly right. Um, and, uh, you know, I... I I, I sort of just, I've discovered, see, I turned 50 last year. and Happy um, birthday. Thank you. And I need to write everything down because I, I just forget things. And I don't know what effect COVID had on you, Amanda, but the effect of COVID on me was that it really fatigued me, but not in a normal way. Like normally when I get to December, I'm physically tired and ready for a holiday, but I still have my mental acuity. I'm just physically ready for that break. Last December, I wasn't physically tired. I was getting plenty of sleep, plenty of rest, but my mind was full of holes. I kept forgetting things. I kept dropping the ball with responsibilities at work. I would just literally forget things that I needed to keep front of mind. So I've got in the habit now of writing everything down. So that's a big part of my day too. I don't think you're alone there. I yeah. feel everyone needed a holiday at the end of the year, even though they were on the couch for most of the year. Correct. I think, uh, yeah, that was just a different thing. It was weird. Like. Yeah, I've never experienced anything like it. I mean, there is some joy in writing things down in the sense that you can forget them. And it totally. frees up your, I find it frees up your mind to think about the things you really want to spend time on. Yes. You can just let them go because they're, they're held. So I see um, the writing down of, Life shrapnel, I'll call it. Yes. It's just something you can get rid of so that you can concentrate on the big stuff. Yes. That you really, that will move you forward. It's that's never exactly the to do right. list that's going to move you forward. No. It's always the big stuff that's going to move you forward, isn't um, it? Unfortunately, when you're running an architectural consulting business, the shrapnel on the to do list is what can make certain things uncertain yeah. for our clients. Yeah. And well, that's, that's, that's what I made some stuff ups with late last year because I was so tired because. You know, they're, they're all those rats and mice things that just, you, you don't need to spend a huge amount of time on them, but you've got to bear them in mind and deal with them. They have um, to be dealt with. They have to be dealt with, yeah. But the bigger things, uh, in a way, the bigger things are easier to keep track of because they're broad brushstroke. So, you know, on, on the whole, I find myself moving in the right direction in general. It's just the day-to-day -day where things get a bit fragmented, I think. I think that's a common story at the yes, moment. Yes, indeed. What advice would you have for any aspiring creative writers? If you could talk to Marcus when he, the younger Marcus, and you had to give him advice on writing, what would you, what would you tell him? It would probably be advice on life because that would inform the writing. And the advice on life would be snap out of it. Stop being so limited in your view of professional categories and orthodoxy. And that's... Uh, certainly one thing that I've had change in my life, the older I've got, the less orthodox I've become. But I used to be very orthodox. Um, I think my nickname was the fascist back at the start of uni because I had a long black leather coat and um, everything was very black and white for me professionally. I got over it. Thank God I got over it. I think I was a real bore, to be perfectly honest with you. And I have seen just, you know, in the time that we've been chatting, 
um, I remember when you were formulating maybe, you know, that you might have Baumgart Clark, yes. you might form that yes. and how you were looking for a working life that encapsulated this breadth of interest that you had That's and right. that for a while you were struggling with how, what is this, how does this play out, what is it Yes. and how's this going to happen? Yes. You know, you need you knew, you knew that you needed you knew that you needed to start to start this process. Yes. And we had amazing discussions we did. about You were one of my sparring partners. How and, how uh, it could happen exactly. and it's happened. It's happened. I road tested a lot of ideas. But it, will happen. <laughs> it does happen eventually if you keep at it, isn't it? It's um what is it, ninety percent of success is just showing up? I don't know who said that. Probably Groucho Marx or someone. Well, probably Brene Brown or probably, more, probably, modern, yeah. more in a modern way. Well, it's interesting. I follow the um I've got to stop saying things are interesting. I'm just interested by everything really. But Austin Cleon uh, is uh, and and I stole my description myself as a writer who designs buildings because Austin Cleon is he wrote the book Steal Like an Artist. Uh and uh it's fantastic. I'd recommend it to you all. He has a fantastic weekly newsletter. He also publishes on Substack. He's all about creativity. Uh, he he uh, the, one of the first things he stole was to call himself a writer who draws because he stole that off uh, uh, a quite well-known American uh, animator. I think I can't remember the name, but on that but uh you know so he's all about stealing so and david bowie he, he he's got some very good quotes one of them is david bowie saying you know i i just look at what i can steal basically and and it's certainly a theme that comes back again and again so i stole my definition of myself uh as a writer who designs buildings from austin cleon austin cleon still like an artist fantastic book he also wrote uh, share your work, which is kind of a, a very small illustrated manifesto for doing things like this podcast and actually just getting your work out there. Uh, he also then wrote in the midst of the pandemic, keep going. <laughs> so the, they are what they say on the tin. Um, they're, they're really good little, they're like manifestos really, full of chock full of quotes. He has an absolute, he's a polymath. He has an absolutely open mind and draws on every possible art form, creative producer, worker, media method. He's absolutely ecumenical in drawing all those things in. And I think that's what I have learned to model myself more on. Um, I've got a long way to go to get to his level of inclusivity, but he, it's a fantastic model because it, it's the opposite of a professionally defined boundary like doctor, lawyer, architect, radiologist, you know, all those things which are protected for very sensible reasons, but equally and very rewarding to be those things on the whole, sometimes even financially, but a bit limiting. What was the name of the book? Uh, the book that he wrote, Steal Like an Artist. Steal Like an Artist. So Fantastic. there's Steal Like an Artist. It's a trilogy. You can get them on Audible as an audio book, actually, when I've read, listened to them about 10 times. Steal Like an Artist. Show your work and keep going. So those are the three together. Better get them in the cart. Yeah. I've got a quick fire round of questions for you. Right. Most useful studio tool? Pencil. Of course. Most useful book? Pandemonium. What's that? By uh, Humphrey Jennings. 
Humphrey Jennings was a post-war hardcore socialist documentary filmmaker and somewhat like, so I'm drawn to books that are assemblies of fragments. I don't know what that's about, but there you have it. It's another one. So basically Humphrey Jennings, uh, I think it was his daughter who published after he died. He got 90% through the project. He wanted to show the coming of the machine to Great Britain through a series of excerpts, quotes, outtakes from letters, poetry, essays, newspaper articles, whatever. And they're, they're ordered chronologically from, I think, 1660 up to about 1930 from memory. Um, absolutely fantastic. And again, like the Book of Disquiet, but it, it it's it's a dense book. You don't read it like a novel, although you can. Some people have and said it's quite amazing, but it has the most extraordinary writing in it. And you can just dip in and it, it tells you only the the author and the year and the number of the fragment. That's all you get. Um, and then you might have one, two, three, five, six, whatever pages. And some of them are from personal letters. You know, the, the English are such fantastic writers for the last 500 years. You know, I, it's, it's fantastic. I love that book. I've got three copies of it. Perfect. All-time favourite building? Well, you know, I am very fond of the High Court of Australia in Canberra. I think it's a masterpiece. Because? It's sense of materiality. It's a concrete brutalist building. Uh, it, its sense of materiality is extraordinary. The concrete is the finest uh, concrete I've ever seen in the world, uh, and I've been to Japan quite a few times, and this the quality. And they're of, good on concrete. They, they do good concrete, <laughs> but the quality of the concrete, just the pouring and the, the consistency, and the, the furniture is amazing. Everything's oversized, overstuffed, and I think that building really does give form. And this is something that architecture can do. We've talked a lot about what it can't do. One thing it can do is give form to. Uh, a symbolic idea or use. And the symbolic idea is justice and it's the highest court in the land. And I think that building is an extraordinary embodiment of an idea of a use, a, a, a very important public communal use. And I love it. I just love it. I'm going to go and see it. I'm going to Canberra in March. I've got to see it Yeah, it's again. fantastic. Yeah. Favourite writer, living or dead? Favourite writer, living or dead? Well, it's a toss-up right now between good old Fernando Pessoa, who I've discovered recently, uh, and my previous favourite, who was Italo Calvino, um, who wrote uh, yet another book, which is Assembled Fragments, uh, called The Invisible Cities, uh, which is often cited in the world of architecture. Uh, Invisible Cities is basically a record of a conversation between Marco Polo and Genghis Khan, and it describes, I don't know, 100,000, I it's not a very big book, but it describes maybe a hundred cities in one or two pages each, and they're like the city of lines or the city of string, or and each one is is another view of Venice. So the premise of the book is that Marco Polo is explaining to Genghis Khan or Kublai Khan, I think it's hard, Kublai Khan, uh, on his travels, all of these extraordinary places he's been, but they're all Venice. So um, it's it's very abstract, but absolutely beautiful. Calvino's writing is absolutely beautiful, even in translation. I've never, I can't read the original Italian. So well, you might have to learn. Right. Favorite photographer. Well, yeah, it's interesting. It, here we are, interesting again. Diane Arbus uh, works for me. Uh, it, my friend, my dear friend Anna Johnson, Doctor Anna Johnson. Is a lecturer at RMIT. I've known her for 30 years. I went through university with Anna 
Uh, she lectures at RMIT. Her father was Mark Johnson, who who took so his uh, he was here recently. He lives in London now, but he his collection of photographs. He's a very well known photographer of the Sydney School, so he was a contemporary of Max Dupain's. He took a series of iconic photos that I imagine you would probably recognise, even though you might never have heard the generic name Mark Johnson. It's a bit forgettable as a name, but of Bondi Beach, standing at the water and looking back up the beach. Mark had a an exhibition at the Art Gallery in New South Wales about 20 years ago, and um, what struck me was that it was a social record, and he also took some beautiful pictures of... Sydney buildings and nothing remarkable, shop top houses, and but just absolutely crystal clear Sydney school sort of documentary photographs. But the Bondi series and others in his collection, which he has actually donated to the Art Gallery of New South Wales, it really was a social record. And there's a contrast there between Mark's work and Diane Arbus. Diane Arbus did a different kind of social record. Uh, if if your listeners are not quite sure who I mean, look her up. It's really a visual experience rather than one I can describe. But I think the point I'd like to make about Diane Arbus is that she was with her subjects. She wasn't in front of them or above them or beyond them, looking down on them. She was absolutely with her subjects. Now, there is an argument that can be made that she fetishised subjects with Down syndrome or what would be called freaks 150 years ago, the very, very tall, the very small. Um, but I think there's an absolute humanity and warmth to her photographs that really makes that argument not hold water. So she certainly uh, took advantage of the absolute striking visuality of people who are unusual, but she never did it in a voyeuristic way. And I'm dying to hear what your favourite quote is. Oh, yes, my favourite quote. This is a really curious one because it comes from the world of sport. And I don't know about you, Amanda Henderson, but I did not get the sport gene. No. So if sport's on the television, I glaze over and slip into a coma. Still do. Yeah, absolutely. I just do not get sport. I don't play it. I've, I used to run when I was younger and more fit, but um, team sports just don't work for me as spectator or participant. But... The amazing tennis player, American tennis player, Arthur Ashe, uh, who was perhaps better known after his extraordinary tennis career as an AIDS activist, has the most wonderful quote in the world, and it is simply this, and you'll see echoes of it in my approach to interviewing people. It's start where you are, use what you have, do what you can. That's it. Perfect. Thank yep. you so much, Marcus. It's just been such a great afternoon having you here. Um, in the studio. It's Thank an you absolute so pleasure, much. Amanda. It's time to go and have some cookies. Absolutely. Let's do it. Do it. Goodbye. Bye.